Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Quick reminder that I recently set up a Patreon account, so if you've been enjoying the show and you have a couple bucks to spare, I'd be so, so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Today, I'm talking to Nora Helfand about celiac and IBD and C. diff and fatigue in general, and then making plans for college and adulthood while you're chronically ill. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So, hello. Hi. I like to start by asking people about their health as a kid. Okay. Um, I want to say I was pretty healthy or at least like there was no one issue that particularly stood out or as something that was super unhealthy. Um, I, I was born with no issues. Um, and then around six months of age, um, probably, I think it was right when I started solid foods, actually, I became constipated Mm, immediately. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I, I don't know how common that is for little babies, honestly, but it's like, you know how babies will make that, that face when they're pooping and like, I would make it and then start crying. Cause like it hurt, which yeah. is like kind of cute and sad at the same time. Right. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I, yeah, I've dealt with constipation for like the majority of my life, which is, um, interesting, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say is I don't, I don't know how to put this exactly. Uh, maybe around three or four years of age. I think how my mom describes it is that I like didn't have a body. Interesting. And what, I guess I have two questions now. So what, how would you interpret, like, what do you think your mom meant when she said that? And then what did that feel like for you? as best as you can recall about that age? Um, I think it was just kind of low awareness of my body or like what was going on. And I was, I think described by some people as being kind of quiet or checked out. Um, Looking back, I mean, (laughs) my memory is obviously going to be kind of limited, but (laughs) I, I think I'd describe it more as overwhelmed maybe Mm. that, uh, just I would get overwhelmed with too many, too much input or crowds or whatever, but I don't, obviously I wouldn't have been able to like express it that way yeah, totally. as a child. But like now when I, I don't know, when I see kids playing or like I go to the playground near my house, I realize most kids are not really like how I was as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like they're just like crazy and like happy all the time and mugging for attention. And I don't feel like I was a lot like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like what might look like kind of withdrawn or introverted or I don't know, whatever other words we use to try to classify little people who can't communicate what they're actually feeling. Yeah. So that. Those are the two things I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so lots of constipation. Did you have, I guess, again, as a kid, you don't, 
it's kind of <laughs> I understand how difficult it is to like reclassify these experiences. Um, yeah. but do you remember there being any pain associated with digestive stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely yeah. a part I mean, of it. I don't know when I started to be aware of it. I think I mean, I think I toilet trained a little later than I should have. Like I might have been almost four years old and part of that could have been like anxiety around discomfort. Mm-hmm of going. Um, but yeah, in, in grade school, I remember very distinctly, like I had so much pain and fissures and just so much stress, uh, around having to go to the bathroom. And, um, I remember like I would take hot baths and just like try to relax. And, um, it was just like, this huge drama thing every night for a while just Mm -hmm. like am I gonna be able to go is it gonna be really painful Mm -hmm. yeah and that of course would create other anxiety and other just like issues when you're like what do I do and I'm anticipating something that's gonna be hard and all of that junk bodies um (laughs) (laughs) okay so so that's kind of was your baseline and then was there a moment when you started to look at your health a little bit differently or when things started to change? I mean, for me, there was a very clear kind of sudden tipping point where like, you know, beforehand I was mostly healthy, but with some kind of weird things starting to surface and all of a sudden I was very sick. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that tipping point? Um, I was in high school. Um, it was my senior year, uh, and pretty much right at the beginning of that school year, um, I started having uh, a lot of diarrhea and like weight loss and uh, low grade fevers, night sweats, and it really came on pretty quickly, although. I will say I had had sort of on and off bouts of diarrhea in the past. I know we talked about constipation, but it would occasionally sort of flip. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was just like all of a sudden I felt terrible and like terribly fatigued. Um, and in high school, I was a cross country and track runner. And, uh, you know, I would do distance running and track. So, it was like, it was kind of shock to me. Where like, I actually won my first race of the season that year. It was like I think the very end of August to 2011, um, and I was like really excited and like so pumped for that season. And I had no idea at that point that I would like never run again. Right after that point, at yeah. least like not competitively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would be. It's, it's interesting to me because I've talked to a few people now who were athletes in high school or athletes in college, and it's such a, a strong, I mean, it can be part of your identity, but also such a strong, like, verifier because when your health starts to change, it can be really easy to doubt it, right? You're like, oh, is it really that bad? Oh, right. whatever, whatever. And you're like, no, I, like in your example, like, no, I won that race. Like, I was performing at a level that I right. physically cannot perform at anymore and this is a definite sign of that it's hard okay so so things all of that stuff started to happen and did did you go to the doctor right away 
Yeah, no, here's kind of the weird thing. So, I mean, I say things started at, in September of 2011, but like something weird happened like a month before that. Mm. Um, and every uh, summer, um, my cross country team would go uh, to a week long uh, running camp, like in the mountains. Um, that was pretty intense. And uh, I had gone two years before with no issues. Um, so this year, 2011, uh, I suddenly just felt really uh, sick while I was there. I mean, I think I felt like maybe I was starting to get sick or hadn't gotten enough sleep not long before we left. But like, it was like we got up there. It was at altitude, obviously, and I just felt terrible. I had these awful headaches. I was dizzy. I was nauseous and, uh, felt like maybe I could be feverish, I think. And like, I maybe shouldn't be at a camp Mm -hmm. like this. Yeah. It was not a good place for your body at that time. Probably not. (laughs) And I mean, but obviously I just had no reason to like, take it particularly seriously yeah it was uh i guess just because it was not my experience at that time that you could like crash yourself and get some massive chronic illness that you have to deal with forever that was not (laughs) obviously in right not even on your radar no um but you know i ended up completing basically one of the like toughest running camps in the country while being like really, really sick. And I mean, I started just like throwing up, having diarrhea and all of this stuff. Um, and I returned to, uh, to Portland where I live, um, afterwards and actually started feeling okay pretty quickly. It kind of seemed to clear up, but, um, just in case I had gotten some weird infection or something just because of the GI symptoms I went to see my pediatrician and um I think they they might have done a stool test or something and they did some blood tests and like you know I had been anemic in the past so like checking whether I was still anemic and stuff um and everything came back normal except one thing um which was a test I didn't realize they had done um but we got this call like I think a week or two later um, and they said, Hey, everything looks fine, but your celiac test came back positive. You're like, okay. Did you, had you heard of celiac at that time? Question one. I think maybe, yeah, I, you know, I did because I, I knew one person who had it and I just knew that he had to buy like weird food at the grocery store. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like one of my friend's younger sisters had celiac, and so I had heard the word from when I was probably in middle school, but I didn't know, you know, what an autoimmune disease was or, like, what it might actually be doing besides meaning that you had to buy more expensive food. <laughs> well, that is a big part of... <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so in general. Had, so they told you uh, you looked positive for celiac. Do you know, was that from a blood test, from the antibody test? Or had they done a scope? Yeah, I think I think it was the antibody they do for celiac, which is 
tissue transglutaminase or TTG. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what they had done. And I don't even know why they like, I'm not sure why they did that test. Yeah. At that time. <laughs> like, I would, I would have to ask. Um, and they just, they didn't really know what to do with it. Cause they were like, we've never had one come back positive. They were kind of <laughs> excited. Yeah. It's, it's finally worth it that we're running this test. Um, but, um, let me see, where was I? Uh, so, and so they had run a lot of tests. This was after you got sick at the camp and before you became sick again. Was this in your kind of in-between time? Right, right. Yeah. So, um, so that came back and I like, didn't really take it that seriously because for one thing, they weren't taking it that seriously, but they, uh, I mean, they did refer me to see a pediatric gastroenterologist. Um, and that was, that was either set up for the following September or once I started actually getting really sick, we moved it up. Okay. But like before that, I mean, I felt fine pretty much for the month of August. Like I went back to, uh, just my normal, like training for cross country and, uh, wasn't thinking much of it. I felt mostly okay. I felt mentally a little weird and different, um, which is really interesting. Like mm -hmm. on my off day for running, I would feel kind of weirdly depressed, which had not happened before. Mm -hmm. So like feeling like my mind was a little off, but otherwise like, okay. Um, so then, yeah, we get to September and I'm starting to feel really sick. It's like, okay, well I've got to see that gastroenterologist and like, um, I think it was probably within like 10 days or something of me being so sick that I had like an upper endoscopy, which is when they like stick a tube down into your uh, stomach and like the kind of the very beginning of your small intestine and like poke around in there and take biopsies. And um, I realized for celiac in particular, really any like autoimmune thing it's like a very rare story to be like worked up for it that quickly mm -hmm. i think for, for most people it takes like years to be even taken seriously yeah yeah i, I mean kind of like you said you're so you don't know why they did that blood test and that's totally unusual and definitely unusual for celiac that people are even looking at it at the beginning <sighs> yeah no, i've been recognizing uh some things about my experience with this have been kind of atypical. I don't um, know if there's a typical though. It's like that's true. It's it's funny. It there are patterns, but there are so many variations to those patterns that like nothing yeah. means anything. That's what I've learned from this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so they yeah think about that. Um, <laughs> so they did the scope. So they did the scope. Yeah. Um, and they found a little bit of, I mean, what they're looking for with celiac is uh, villus blunting, which is like the villi are these little finger things that digest stuff in your, uh, in like your small intestine. Um, and uh, when you have celiac, they start to atrophy or, uh, I mean, the easiest visual is that the fingers get cut off. They become like really stubby and don't. Mm -hmm. uh, absorb nutrients right yeah. um, and specifically and found, sorry no I'm sorry to interrupt just specifically because as an autoimmune disease like that's what's being attacked by your immune system right is right, the little yeah. villi villi the little guys yeah. <laughs> v-i-l-l-i 
Uh, sorry to interject. So that's what they're looking at when they biopsy. Yeah. Um, and they found that I did have some uh, blunting, although not very extensive. Um, and so they, uh, they diagnosed me with celiac disease and said, well, go gluten-free now, um, which I was like extremely upset about. <laughs> that was, I, I loved food. Yeah. And like, I mean, sometimes before my, uh, like not even necessarily before my races, but just like in general, I would carbo load and just have like bowl after bowl of whole wheat pasta. And like, I liked going to the pizza place after practice. And it was just, yeah, I was not really excited to not be doing gluten. Yeah. Which is fair. It's a huge adjustment. It's a huge adjustment. Like I eat gluten-free now and it helps. It makes a huge difference for me and my health also, but it's not like, oh, this is a casual and easy change that makes my life 100% easier every day. No, absolutely not. Um, But here's where things start to get interesting. Um, I went gluten-free and I kept getting worse. That is interesting. Not expected for celiac. No. Or standalone celiac, I guess. No, not at all. Um, In fact... I mean, I I was doing so poorly. I developed these weird kind of nodule things on my lower legs. Um, like on your skin? Were they external or internal? Kind of bumps. Um, they were external. I've, it started as a, quote, weird bruise. Oh. And um, I, I, like, showed it to my dad, and he's, uh, like, he's a physician. And he's like, that's not a bruise. And I'm, like instantly rolling my eyes because I, uh, I think he's like blowing it out of proportion or something. Um, but, uh, it turned out he knew like exactly what it was. Um, although I didn't know yet and, um, I didn't find out until they had already started spreading, like growing okay, and, and hurting and hurting. That was going to be my question. So painful. And like, I kind of, visually sort of like a bruise situation uh yeah just looked kind of like a discolored uh pretty much flat patch of the skin um and I think that like I don't think I would grow any hair on the places it was like I think it was kind of like flattened out okay Um, and they became like extremely painful like I couldn't I couldn't touch them. It felt like I had basically a second degree burn there or something and um, would especially hurt if I stood up um, or walked and I was having trouble getting to the bathroom and like already was like having to go to the bathroom significantly more than I had in the past. Um, so this <laughs> this period is kind of a blur for me. There was a lot of testing, a lot of like ER trips and freaking out. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff on my lower legs ended up being erythema nodosum. Okay. Um, and what? Which is, yeah. What is that to your knowledge? Oh man, I. That's okay. I kinda, it's okay that we're not scientists. <laughs> yeah, I know. I kind of don't remember what it is, but I do know that it's a 
complication. Uh, it's a, not an uncommon complication of inflammatory bowel disease. Okay. And and so, um, like I think, literally like a month after I had gotten the celiac diagnosis, I was like back in the um, like OR or whatever it was, getting a like full colonoscopy and like a repeat upper endoscopy, um, and. Like, not only did I have IBD, but it was so bad that they couldn't even make it to the end of my colon. Because normally they go all the way to the terminal ileum, which is, like, where your small intestine meets the large intestine. Okay. They were like, we can't even go that far because this is so inflamed that we're scared we're going to, like, screw something up or perforate you or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's just um, not enough space, basically, with the amount of inflammation. I, I or like room to maneuver. I don't really know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> the mysteries of the colon. But yeah, it it was it was bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I kind of already know part of the answer to this. But so so they told you you had IB I yes IBD. There's a lot of acronyms in these kinds of right. conversations. So they told you that you have IBD, and then what did they want to do about it? What was the treatment protocol they gave you? Um, was instantly blasted with steroids. Um, Sounds right. Did they help? Didn't. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't help. They made me completely crazy immediately because um, that's what steroids do. Yeah, they can have um, a pretty strong impact on everything about your life. Yeah, no. Um, so that was just kind of a shock. I mean... It's one thing to like be dealing very suddenly with uh, like this severe illness uh, that you're told is going to be for the rest of your life, but then to like not even feel like yourself or recognize yourself on top of it because of these weird hormones that they're blasting you with. Mm-hmm. Like it was just a very like confusing and traumatic time. Yeah, I believe it. And in high school, which is already a very confusing and traumatic time. I, you know, and I had a good time in high school, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I went to an all-girls Catholic school, and I think it was a really good environment for me, honestly. Yeah, it was a good Um, fit. Yeah, especially, like, I liked doing sports, and I would uh, do sports pretty much uh, Mm -hmm. year-round. So I had, like, a niche, and I liked... Uh, I liked my friends and I liked generally how my life was going. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, there, not that there's a good time to get sick, but like particularly like I was a senior in high school and that's like when you are really like starting to establish independence and like strike out in the world and decide like where you're going to do or sorry, what you're going to do, <laughs> where you're going to go next. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, <laughs> Um, and I just got kind of completely like blindsided by this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You're right. I mean, you're supposed to be making decisions about what you want your life to look like. And you're like, my life has become totally unstable. I would like to focus on that, I guess. 
Maybe not I would like to. I have to now focus on that instead. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't want to. And I, I mean, I applied to college. I mean, I, but it was so weird because I was so fatigued from this and like, I think abnormally fatigued. At least mm-hmm. I knew my case was severe, but um, the fact that like fatigue and uh, like just crashing from small amounts of activity was uh, like having a bigger impact on my quality of life than like having to run to the bathroom or find bathrooms. Yeah. Like I didn't have, I don't feel that I had that much urgency or problem I don't remember having a lot of accidents or anything like that I just remember being really really tired yeah which is also a huge I mean it impacts every part of your life when you like focus and cognitive fatigue and physical fatigue like everything just gets harder like playing on hard mode yeah and I couldn't I mean I couldn't really even care for myself and like I had been thinking that I would do like that I would run or do athletics in college and like within the space of a few months I suddenly was like what if I just can't do that yeah and I don't want to like pick the next step of my life uh based on planning to do something that I won't even end up being able to do Mm -hmm. but it was just like so not enough time to like figure out where like where I should actually be headed next Yeah. And how was school itself going? Were you missing a lot of school or were you having trouble, I mean, maintaining school? (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was missing like every other day. I think I would go and then the effort of going that day would like knock me out for the next day. And I was sleeping up to like 14 hours in a day or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and the school was very good about accommodating me and they, uh, you know, they adapted some assignments and deadlines and, uh, they lowered my course load a bit. So that was all good. I didn't have a a lot of issues there. Um, but yeah, I was just kind of not really all there at that time. Yeah, of course. It's not really your first priority when your body is doing that I don't even know what to call it when your body is not behaving the way that you expect and needs a lot of care right um okay so you were so did you apply to college did you end up and did you end up going to college did that make sense at the time so yeah I applied to college I actually um I wrote my essay for the University of Chicago in the hospital um (laughs) Because after like three months of this, I uh, got bad enough that I was hospitalized um, for a week and I received a biologic drug in the hospital that actually helped a lot and started kind of reversing things. Okay. Um, but yeah, while I was there, um, I mean, they just blasted me with steroids again. And uh, so for a couple nights, I was practically like up all night and uh, yeah, just, just wired. Yeah, just like needing to do stuff. So I was like, okay, I'll bang out this like essay about Plato or whatever. So <laughs> sure. Whatever. Um, just some light philosophy. Cause that was, you know, the university of Chicago has like really weird, um, 
essay prompts. And so I think the one I wrote about was like, how is Plato like Play-Doh? <laughs> Great. Great. So anyway, wrote, wrote something about that and it ended up getting me into the University of Chicago. <laughs> cool. Cool. <laughs> Um, which I was not really expecting, and obviously I didn't find this out till like the following March. Um, right, of course. By which time I was doing a lot better physically. And what do you think created that? So you had been pulsing steroids. It sounds like when things got really bad. Did you stay on a bi- biologic? Like, were you on a regular infusion schedule? Uh, yeah. Um. For a few years, yeah, I was on Remicade, which you, you do get infusions like every four to eight weeks, just mm-hmm. depending on how much you need. Um, like eventually I developed um, not antibodies to the drug, but uh, like I think anti-nuclear antibodies. I had like a low level. Um, sorry, my phone is ringing. That's okay. <laughs> it's a pharmacy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Like, not now. Um, yeah, well, we're talking yeah. about drugs. Um. <laughs> yeah, because that's one of the problems with I know Remicade specifically, but I think biologics in general is that your body can basically adapt to them in unusual ways, and they become less effective. Yeah, I actually wasn't losing effectiveness, but I had developed muscle pain at some point, um, and. Uh, since I had uh, kind of low-level signs of, like, uh, oh, you might be at risk for, like, drug-induced lupus or something like that, they're just like, well, maybe the, maybe the Remicade's causing it. Uh, we may want to switch you out. So I, um, so I ended up on Humira, and I'm actually still on it. I've been on it since 2013. Mm-hmm. And... I want to hear more about that, but I also want to ask, had you, what were you finding with your diet uh, uh, along the way? Because I'm guessing, so after you get diagnosed with celiac, you cut out gluten and that, did that stick? Yeah, I kept doing it because like. You still uh, had celiac. Right. Apparently. I mean, that's actually, it's interesting because I may get a second opinion on the pathology soon and, you know, that's honestly I mean it's like it's been almost eight years mm-hmm. since that report but like a, some doctor is like disputing it now mm-hmm. but yeah so you don't know um, for sure um but yeah so what else did you learn with diet because obviously when you're having problems with digestion it makes putting food into your body difficult right yes yeah yeah, no. Um, yeah, let's see. I think so. Back when things were completely out of control, like before my first uh, hospitalization, mm-hmm. um, we were—I say we because I was uh, still a minor and it was kind of making all medical decisions in tandem with my parents. Yeah. Um. I tried I think we tried to do an elemental diet briefly um because my dad had read some paper on like pediatric Crohn's and how sometimes it could uh be put into remission just by uh 
drinking these uh, kind of pre-digested formulas. Um, and I think I try that for like a week and, um, like for one thing, it tasted disgusting, but it also <laughs> like it didn't have any impact on my symptoms. And we kind of figured if it, uh, if it didn't start to help pretty quickly, it wasn't going to help. Right. So, and like for the effort, it probably wasn't worth can, effort and cost. I'd imagine wasn't worth the experimentation. Right. I think quality of life is another thing because uh, it's it really sucks to not be able to eat anything and to constantly yeah. be uh, drinking stuff that tastes like horrible. Yeah. Um. But uh, then right after that, um, we tried uh, the specific carbohydrate diet. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know if you've heard of it. I mean, it's I've heard of it, some... but I don't know all the details because it's about like high. It's about um avoiding kind of like low quality carbs and stuff, isn't it? Is that right? Or like simple yeah, carbs? Yeah, it's um well, it's it's about avoiding like pretty much any complex carbs or okay uh, the opposite of what I said. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Simple carbs are like the only thing allowed, and you can do like as much fructose or glucose as you want, as long as it's uh, not like a starch, basically. Okay, um, so avoiding starch more. Yeah, more or less. It's, it's got some similarities to paleo and uh, like gaps. If you've heard of gaps, mm-hmm. um, and so we, I started doing that, um, and. You know, I want to say I started that maybe the middle of October, and um, again by by the end of November, I was like in the hospital, being told like we will probably have to remove your colon if you don't try these biologics and uh, like mm. for a miracle. So yeah, I was pretty much not sold on diet at that point as something that was going to right like treat my disease. Yeah. Yeah, because um, there's two pieces to this, right? There's like figuring out if there are foods that are specifically aggravating that you want to just avoid. So like, can you prevent making things worse? And then there's like, are there dietary options that will actively improve things? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, no. It, I think diet has largely become about damage control for me. Yeah. Um. I haven't felt that it's ever helped me round a corner on something or attain like a new level of health, but uh, it's been more like I ate this thing and it meant that I could not uh, focus for the next hour or like I got some massive headache and like reflux or something from it. Like, so figuring out, if a food is causing that, like, obviously you want to figure it out and avoid whatever that food is. But yeah, it's never been like the whole picture, obviously. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. So I just was curious about how that all fit in. So you were on Remicade and you got into the University of Chicago. Uh, I feel like that's kind of where we were chronologically before I took us on a detour. Yeah, I know. And this is so, this is such a long, I mean, I kind of want to like interject here and say that like my history has gotten so kind of convoluted and complicated that uh, no one doctor really knows it super well. Um, 
And in the past year, I hired a patient navigator to kind of uh, take my whole history and uh, sort of comb through it and try and research more like options. I didn't know that was a thing. And I'm really excited to find out that it is. Well, it was kind of this like crisis point back in like last November where I was like the healthcare system is like impossible for me to manage, particularly like as the person who is chronically ill and like the labor of uh, managing a complex patient so often lands on the complex patient because nobody is really uh, taking the initiative Right. Yes. Definitely. To like manage and drive things, um, and pretty soon after I was uh, like having that problem, my dad found this website, PatientNavigator.com, um, and they have people who will kind of be your advocate. Um, they do some stuff with like coordinating care for elderly patients, and then they do some stuff for like uh, helping patients navigate the healthcare system or uh like helping patients who have received a diagnosis they're not sure is quite right and uh they want someone to like put in some hours for them uh to uh research other possibilities or uh other physicians who might be better suited to their thing i mean it's yeah i'm saying i mean it sounds like a dream right yeah (laughs) yeah it's like everybody needs this but it's imperfect, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, it's, like, really expensive. Yeah. Uh, I but... believe that. Well, it's time-consuming. <laughs> I mean, like you say, at like, this usually falls on the patient. And so many people talk about how just managing care is, like, a full-time job because you want to make sure that you're doing everything in your power to have the best quality of life possible. And it's really time-consuming, especially if your energy is compromised or your cognitive function is compromised. Like... That's so much stuff, and I understand that it would definitely be expensive to outsource, unfortunately. Yeah. um, I just hit this point where I was like, my clinical history is all over the map. It's like a zillion stacks of records that are impossible to maintain. I walk into a a new practitioner's office, and they, like, have all these like random scattered notes from other people they're like I don't even know what to do with this or what to make of this yeah what's Um, important even and so point that I was getting to would be that the history taking process with my navigator I want to say it took up maybe eight to ten phone calls each of which were about 80 minutes long yeah yeah and and to put that in like perspective against typical medical care is like a specialist yeah, exactly. intake appointment maybe half an hour like yeah some sometimes like even 15 or 20 minutes yeah. and it's like okay you're good like go home get some rest take a <laughs> <Like>, yeah <laughs> you're like thank you good good um yeah no i understand that it can be super thorough and also these records have usually i think for most people have so many dead ends that are like become not so much a part of your story, but are really important for your medical care to be like, we've investigated this, we've investigated this, you know, like what have we ruled out and what do we still not know? Right. It's, 
it blows your mind. And uh, like, I, I think the reason I like sort of turned in this direction rather than telling the story is like, I'm starting to realize like, I know there's no way we're going to get to all of this. Story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we can like, we can get kind of faster basically, if that makes the most sense. Um, so we know that you were diagnosed with uh, Crohn's and that, sorry, not Crohn's, celiac and then IBD. And mm-hmm. then you tried Remicade, which worked for a couple of years, but was messing with your ANA levels. So at some point you switch over to Humira. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? And I, okay. And I, I hear you. So if we're going to like do some more glazing, what I would love to know is how did it impact, did it impact your daily life? Right. Cause we're talking about like building a lot. Of course it did, but we're talking about like building a life and maybe going to college or thinking about a career. Like we can kind of, without getting so bogged down that it would take whatever eight times 80 is 640, 640 minutes. Um, <laughs> like from where you are right now, I'd love to hear kind of more about that process. Does that make sense? From where I am right now? Like just you obviously, when we think back to like, oh, I know so much more now than I knew when I was 19 or 21 or whatever. So it's okay if it's not always told like in the present tense as if you don't know what the future holds. The weird thing is I feel like I know a lot less than I thought (laughs) I knew then. Yeah, uh, that's that's fair. <laughs> yeah, you've learned more about what you don't know, maybe. Yeah, or even about what I think I can control. I mean, and it's weird how once I'm doing better uh, for a period of time, because you do better and you do worse. And like, once I'm doing better, I'm so optimistic that I can like get on top of things. And I'm like, I'm going to do like these three things. And then, uh, you know, here's my plan for life. And then again, it just can get like completely disrupted for like no obvious reason or clear thing you did. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the smallest version of that in my life, I really relate to it on a whole life level, but even like my email inbox gets really backed up because sometimes responding to emails is just not going to happen because I have problems with my arms and my hands and because of cognitive fatigue. And then whenever that kind of clears up for a while, like every email I send is like, oh, sorry for the delay, but I'm all good now. So I expect (laughs) to be totally responsive and normal. And it's like, that is such a lie that I am telling by accident because of my deep denial that like, of course, this will flare up again. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think one time, like maybe last October, I, uh, I like had some family members over briefly and I was talking to them about like, yeah, things were just really bad this year, but they really seem like they're going to be okay. And that time that I like talked to them was probably the last time I would be okay for the next like several months. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know. I was just like, Oh, it seems like things are going in the right direction now. Like why would I assume they're not? Yeah. Well, like this trend line, I will assume it's going to continue despite past evidence to the contrary. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So a different version of this kind of question is like, what have you been up to in your day-to-day life? Like, what Ooh. was school, you know, what was school like? Have you, have you done some work? Have you kind of like, what do you get up to, you know? <laughs> oh, that's a good, okay. Um, like when I was, in college, I mean, 
yeah, I, I, I ask myself now, like, why did I develop a serious chronic disease and then think like, I'm going to go to this like top school and <laughs> yeah. And like infamously serious and vigorous as a school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where fun goes to die. That's, that's the university of Chicago. <laughs> I know. I thought it, but didn't say it when you were talking about it. <laughs> Like, it's wild just where my, <laughs> I, I'm a little better at setting my expectations now for, like, what you would <laughs> expect yeah. to be able to do. Um, I had no ability to do that then. It, it, it got to be a problem because I didn't know really how to assess my readiness to take a particular course. And I, I have to assume that part of that is because before I got sick, just kind of the sky was the limit. Yeah, of course. Um, and you know, if I took something that was challenging or like too much for me, it didn't have terrible consequences for like my health or even just my grades necessarily. Cause I would adapt and I would like, uh, you know, I would be strengthened by kind of the adversity of that situation. Mm-hmm. And that was not what was happening to me in college. I was not adapting much of the time I would often drop classes or have to take a leave or take a retrospective leave or whatever yeah yeah like you end up in a position where you have no choice but to take a break that you were really hoping was not going to be a thing like with blinders on hoping it wouldn't happen right yeah so did you finish college I did and did you finish college on a normal on a normal on a expected and typical time frame like no. how, yeah no, how did the leaves not. affect that the leaves made it take longer for me to graduate wow <laughs> <laughs> uh no and it wasn't it wasn't like insanely long I think it took me maybe five and a quarter years or something yeah which all kinds of people take five years or six years or even seven years for all kinds of reasons, but it's still hard. (laughs) Um, okay. Any other like reflections about college? So we don't get stuck in the 860 minute version or sorry, 640 brain fog. Um, (laughs) yeah. Any other like, uh, reflections about college or what that, what that time was like? Ooh, <laughs> that's something I probably need to reflect on more. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it it's also just a blur. Like, all the work and, like, trying to deal with uh, my health and, like, being on medications that sort of alteredly, altered me mentally and, like, uh, yeah. some of which I probably shouldn't have been on but then couldn't taper off of because that would put me further behind in school um Mm -hmm. it was uh like the need to like finish and not drop out and particularly the barriers I felt that the university enacted to just taking as much time as you needed yeah um were pretty detrimental I think to my at least to my pursuit of health yeah and was there was there um anybody that you could go to that served some kind of advocate position. So the way that like disability advocates are becoming more common on college campuses now, do you feel like you had support from anybody or do you feel like you were really kind of on your own navigating this within that system? 
Um, you know, our student disability services were underfunded, but uh, at least the person who was there and uh, by my like second year of college and uh, worked there most of my time at the university was pretty good and helpful. I think she was just overwhelmed uh, just because, again, they really needed more staff than they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big school as well. Yeah. Okay. And so did you also, it sounds like you started Humira while you were in college. Is that right? So you switched meds somewhere in this process. Yeah. And you're Mm -hmm. still on that. Were there any other like major health changes at that time? Um, In college, I had all kinds of weird health changes. Um, (laughs) In 2013, while I was still on uh, Remicade and not yet on Humira, um, I had C. diff. Uh, that's my like, reaction to that. <laughs> uh, like three times. <laughs> and by some stroke of luck, the gastroenterologist I, uh, I saw there uh, was kind of pioneering in fecal transplants. Okay. For C. diff, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of emerging as one of the few treatments that would really prevent it from coming back. Right. Because um, the problem with it, also, I don't know if people listening know what this is. Yeah, but... yeah. Feel free to give more information because I think my summary would be inaccurate. <laughs> so, uh, C. diff or C. difficile or Clostridium difficile, if you want to get. Uh, really long-winded. Um, it's a bacterial infection um, that uh, I guess is usually transmitted uh, by the fecal-oral route and uh, can also be acquired uh, by use of antibiotics um, just because it alters the gut bacteria. And the uh, and it's antibiotic-resistant, right? That's one of the, like, yeah, Big so it's problem. called difficile for a reason. It's, yes. like, really difficult to treat, and I think that is literally why they named it that. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, and, like, um, this is the wrong word, but, like, popularized by Tignataro, who is a comedian who had it, who talked about it a lot, and it shows up in her show, like... You know, I, I know her. I didn't know she had C. diff. That's crazy. She did, yeah, because she also talked a lot about cancer, but she had C. diff, um, and... I think her show is called One Mississippi on, I forget if it's on Hulu or Amazon. But anyway, her character of herself on that show also has C. diff. And so they talk about fecal transplants and stuff. Just as a not-so-scientific reference for anybody who's lightly curious, I guess. Um, But anyway, yeah. So it can take over your guts kind of a couple different ways. And it's very difficult to treat. So, So they look at fecal transplants. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had it like bad enough that the first time I had it, I was hospitalized and I was sent home with uh, vancomycin, an antibiotic, um, and uh, infection got better. Um, came back like a month or two later um, and I was hospitalized again. Um, and again, like discharged with these antibiotics. And I saw my gastroenterologist, um, not long after being discharged. Um, 
and I told him that I wanted to uh, see if I could obtain a fecal transplant. Um, and at that time, I think the FDA was allowing it uh, if you'd had either like two recurrences requiring hospitalization, like both of which you failed treatment for, or like three uh, that didn't necessarily cause hospitalization. And so I told him, like, well, you know, I've been hospitalized twice for this, and uh, I know the statistics that suggest that, uh, like, it will likely come back if it's already come back once. Um, so I want to get a fecal transplant. And he said to me, uh, well, you don't qualify yet. This, uh, this course of antibiotics that you're on now would have to fail. Um, Which and, you know, would be so frustrating. You're like, okay, cool. So is that our game plan? Let this fail? Well, here's what's weird about this. If you can imagine, I, from what I knew about the efficacy of fecal transplants, I actually wanted that course of antibiotics to fail. Mm-hmm. In order to have that option available. Right. And for the record, uh, a fecal transplant is exactly what it sounds like. It's Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's getting somebody else's fecal matter, like, transplanted into your body, basically. And with the intention that their healthy bacteria will create a healthier environment, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we know why it helps C. diff so much specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there, um, I think there's some people who have studied it in IBD and it does seem to help in some instances, but it's not as, I guess, consistent or dramatic a result as mm. infections like C. diff. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So the third round of antibiotics, how did that go? Oh no, this was only the second round of antibiotics. Oh, okay. um, what we ended up doing based on my idea was I realized that because I had comorbid IBD, mm-hmm. um, my gastroenterologist had prescribed a longer course of the antibiotics. And so I actually said to him, like, well, if we do the antibiotics for the normal, like, two weeks or whatever it is for someone without IBD, then end up the disease comes back. I mean, that still counts as a failure. You can write that down as a failure. Right. And like, I really wanted this treatment because I had a training thing in community organizing that I like wanted to go to in a few weeks. And I like wanted to be pretty secure that I would be well for it. And so (laughs) he's like, let's do it. And (laughs) this is the story of how we like intentionally undertreated like a dangerous infection just so that I could like obtain a better treatment for said infection because medicine is just like wild sometimes. Yeah, totally. Like the authorization process can be very intriguing. Yeah, true. All right. So you're intentionally, and then what happened? Um, well, I had to get retested for uh, C. diff, and I was uh, I was a little nervous about it because when I had the test, I didn't even have diarrhea. And, like, uh, I don't think, in general, if someone is, like, suspected of having C. diff, uh, you're not really supposed to test unless they have, like, liquid diarrhea. Um, but my test came back positive. <laughs> um, 
which is good news, bad news, right? (laughs) Yeah, to me, it was like totally good news. (laughs) It's so messed up, but I I feel like you've heard that a lot. Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah, of course. It's like, of course, you would prefer not to have C. diff. But if you're going to have the symptoms and a treatment is available, then the diagnosis is a good thing. Yeah, because I, yeah, I was not feeling great. Yeah. Even though I wasn't having like diarrhea, but I didn't feel that great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, found a donor, got the donor tested for stuff because they're supposed to like not have uh, any like infections that they might not know about, right. obviously, um, or parasites. And yeah. um, one interesting thing is that uh, if someone has celiac, like if the patient has celiac, like I did, uh, you're supposed to find a donor who doesn't eat gluten. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, that is so, interesting. <laughs> yeah, obviously a little tougher than it would have been, but uh, I did find someone and uh, I did do the treatment and I, I felt better like almost immediately. Wow. And did you notice just because you mentioned that also fecal transplants are kind of, they look at it for other digestive conditions. Did you notice uh, an improvement across your symptoms or were you even able to really distinguish like this one is definitely C. diff and this one is definitely IBD or did it kind of feel like stuff just merged together and sometimes got worse? Um, my IBD stayed pretty well, mostly in remission um, over the time I was on biologics. I was okay. someone who had a very strong response to them mm-hmm. to the point where like, I went from being one of the worst cases of IBD that uh, my first GI had seen to being like one of her best outcomes who was just like, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, like I had later colonoscopies that like were completely that were good uh, that were really looking good yeah yeah okay so so then it was like pretty obvious in that context that this was a C diff problem and pretty obvious that the treatment had helped with the C diff basically yeah 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 it never I've never once had C diff since then well that is a yeah (laughs) small piece of good news yeah no it's beautiful um, okay. So then if it makes sense, tell me about what's been going on since college, both like, what do you get up to? Same question. Cause I know that like work and purpose and all of these things get kind of, I don't know what hand gesture I just made, but get kind of like confusing and intertwined and run into the same issues. Uh, and then health as much as there have been changes or new information or whatever. So I finished college at the end of 2017. Um, And I think I was, I was feeling pretty optimistic about things. Um, My biggest problem at that time was that I was having these like horrible headache episodes. I call them episodes because I wouldn't just get a headache. I would usually have other symptoms that kind of clustered with it and kind of went away with it. Um, like my heart rate would go up. I would, uh, have just fog, be really brain foggy and stuff. And, um, sometimes something with my throat, like either reflux or post nasal drip, I didn't really know what it was. 
Um, and a lot of my time in that last quarter of college was just consumed with a symptoms app, like trying to track what I was eating and what I was exposed to in my environment. Cause I, I felt like the headaches had a trigger or something just cause it would be these like multi-system symptoms that would appear and disappear at roughly the same amount of time. Um, but, you know, they weren't really covered by any of my diagnoses. No one had said, you'll have these weird headache things that kind of incapacitate you for a day. Right. And I don't think they were migraines because I had had some migraines before and it was a very different quality. It was more, much sharper pain. Mm. Um, and did you learn anything from symptom tracking? Since that is like such a difficult thing to even get into I feel like yeah I don't think I learned very much from it and <laughs> <laughs> yeah I get it and it's, it is so much work and uh I feel like I mean it's it's science basically and science is a lot of work to yield sometimes no results or clear insights mm-hmm. yeah yeah Yep. <laughs> That's all um, I have to say about symptom tracking. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, I, I still point to it as this period of, like, optimism. Like, you know, if I just dig, I can figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if I work harder at it, whatever that means. Like, p- look look harder for patterns or do better research or try harder to fix my bad habits, whatever they may be. Right. And I mean, I wish I had some story of like, no, but then we figured out what they really were. And now they're, but I mean, they are gone, but I have no idea why they went away. Yeah. And I think like that is super common. And, and I think like media or the culture has created this expectation that you can't tell your story until you figure it out. So until you have that version of it, of like, and then it turned out that it was all because like, I don't know. I was I was wearing earrings that I was allergic to and my whole body was reacting. So when I stopped, it was fixed. And I think the truth is that most people are still trying to find that explanation so that they can start telling their story. And and it creates this false bias that that even exists, because I think that the truth is that there isn't a convenient explanation or a single explanation for most people's like chronic and complicated health health conditions. Yeah, I mean, even. I mean, I listened to your first uh, episode um, where you talk about your experience. And I mean, already since then, so much has evolved and gotten maybe less clear in some ways. Yeah. And I'll say in my case specifically, I I just went back to like, I just started pushing on doctors again. So I went back to my PCP and I went back to specialists. Like I just had a neurologist appointment. I had a cardiologist appointment last week. Like I am getting new tests done and getting new information. So like I just got MRI results that I have not yet been able to review with a doctor, but I definitely have spinal stenosis and like bone spurs in the vertebrae in my neck. And like that can pinch your nerves. That can put pressure on your nerves, which can cause some of the neurological problems that I've been having and maybe other problems. But also, I still, like, the part of my story that's in my episode about the mold, I still had distinct, like, symptoms while we were in that house that have never come back. So some of that stuff was definitely environmental and some of that stuff maybe wasn't. And, like, pulling that apart and telling that story is hard. (laughs) 
fact. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just don't know. I mean, I've known people who have had symptoms that seemed to clearly be for mold, and they worked out they were for mold, but at some point they just stopped reacting to mold. So, yeah, yeah, and it's like, what else is um, what it what else is triggering your immune system to be kind of so sensitive? Like this general theory about environmental illness and allergies and stuff. That's like sometimes there's it's like a bucket, right? And you can your body can take so many kind of insults, and then one thing will set you off. Or like people with uh, mast cell problems, mast cell activation problems. It's like, yeah, you can, you just have allergic reactions to random shit. I had some like, I mean, not at all serious, but kind of intense reactions to hotel coffee in February, two days in a row, exact same reaction. I drink coffee every day. I'm not allergic to coffee. I have not reacted to any other coffee since, but whatever the conditions that day meant that my immune system was not having that coffee like what why well it's you know it's it's understandable why some people i'm not saying i condone it but it's clear why some people think that we're overreacting yeah a bit (laughs) yeah it's from the outside it looks really erratic and chaotic and i understand that and I've been thinking about it with my own story as I'm like, oh, I might, I might, I don't know yet. I might have more information and a new diagnosis and like a different explanation. And it's, it's a, it becomes a credibility problem too. Like this doesn't mean that everything that I said and thought about my health before was untrue, but it speaks to how, right. how difficult the diagnostic experience is because you tell stories and try to find meaning in something that might change. And people who haven't been through that, it seems absurd because it's so different than how I think how it's represented in media. Like the way that movies tell us that people find out about health conditions make it seem really binary. And that's just not the case. I have a lot of rants about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so so back to you so tell me i guess like what what's up now basically what is the present like since you're about two years out of college it sounds like uh yeah like a year and a half maybe Mm -hmm. um a few months after college i moved back home um to my parents house in portland um and I kind of, I got offered like a part-time job by some coincidence around when I graduated. It was like my former boss uh, had um, been asked by this research team uh, for recommendations because I had done some uh, research assistant work that was remote in the past. And um, I kind of interviewed for this job thinking like, uh, you know, this is like up my alley and something I want to do, but I really feel like I need a break. Yeah. Yeah. Just to rest for a while. You know, and I was really, uh, I really went through a big process of like, what are my values here? I value my health. I haven't gotten the opportunity to value my health as much as I could because I've been needing to push myself to uh, graduate and not get like kicked out of school by uh being on probation too long 
Um, and so I was really clear and firm. Like they, they actually offered me a full-time position, which would have been great. And I was like, I can only work 15 hours for you. Yeah. Which good for you for saying, because it's hard. It's hard to like, one, admit that for yourself, I think, or I definitely have a problem with that. And I know other people do. And then two, go out and advocate for that. Like those are both really difficult things to do. Yeah, it was. And I mean, gosh, like work for any kind of research university. I mean, those are some of the best jobs you can have, I think. I mean, I had so much flexibility. It was remote. So I was doing it from a different state. Um, And yet, I think I had mentioned before that um, in college, I just ended up on a bunch of medications that um, I couldn't really taper off of because I didn't have the time to devote to really dealing with the withdrawal effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And one in particular I really needed to get off of. Um, I was on a type of steroid that had uh, apparently suppressed my adrenal glands and I had developed adrenal insufficiency. And it was, it's a kind that's like reversible in theory if you just uh, very gradually wean off of the steroid. Mm. But my problem was like, I, you know, I had to get this work together for this team and I would like up my steroid dose in order to get through some of the work which like I could not keep up I had to get off of them that was what my focus needed to be and so eventually I just had to leave uh, the job and become a full-time patient (laughs) yeah yeah totally yeah and that how did that feel because it in my experience choosing to do that can really um it can be a really emotional process you're like yes yes nodding (laughs) yeah it was really really I mean it was tough and I want to say in a good way ultimately um really being forced to actually listen to what my body had been telling me to do Mm -hmm. for probably quite a long time yeah yeah. And and I'm going to project again. In my experience, it's like when you make space to to do that, to kind of like pay more attention to your body, you realize sometimes how much you've been making it just deal with. Like another just small kind of micro example. So I'm lying down right now while we're having this conversation because I strained my yeah. neck last weekend. Um, and I've been resting my neck for a week and it's still not like – it's still not normal. But now that I've just had this experience because I rest so much now, I'm realizing that in my 20s when I was working full time and volunteering and like doing just very busy, I was a very busy person. I felt like I had that level of pain all the time and I didn't, I just was living with it. And I'm like, of course that was not sustainable and you crashed extremely hard when your body like couldn't tolerate that anymore like how did you not realize that that was an insustainable and definitely not normal amount of pain but I had no idea or I didn't want to think about it or I just you know and it's it's like when you make space for that you're like oh I'm sorry body I have been abusing you jeez (laughs) yeah yeah no it's it's heavy um 
And I mean, you also don't want to get completely narcissistically obsessed with your body either, <laughs> which can also happen. I, I think probably Megan O'Rourke's piece on this from the New Yorker. I is like, love that essay so much. Um, I think it's called What's Wrong With Me. I'll put a link to yeah. it in the show notes. What's it's wrong so, with me? It's so good. Sorry, go on. Yeah. You become obsessed. But- yeah, just like I'm going to pursue every treatment under the sun and be monitoring every aspect of my life. And at a certain point, like the gains uh, you might obtain from that don't really outweigh the effort you're putting in and the impact on your personal relationships. Yeah. Um, you really don't want to be thinking about your body all the time. I think you need to think about it more than you were when you were just like trucking along full time, not thinking about it at all. Yeah. But there's a process of finding a balance. And um, I mean, I can't emphasize enough as like, I think a lot of people who you've interviewed probably can't like, I've been so lucky to even have um, an environment where I can focus on mm-hmm. my health um, to the extent that I can my just my family is very supportive of me in that endeavor. Yeah. Being able to take a step back is a privilege, no matter how much it feels like I can't work anymore. Like there are people who still do. Yeah. Most people have to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Huge, hugely important to recognize because that's a, that's a really big cultural problem and failing of our social safety net, et cetera. Um, Yes. You just made me think of something else, too, and now I lost it. So go on, and I might interrupt you in 30 seconds when it comes back. Ooh. um, Go on. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, so I don't know how old you are, but I'm I'm imagining, based on when all this started, that you were on your parents' health insurance. Um, So are you still able to do that, or have you had to find your own health insurance solutions yet? I am still on their health insurance and uh, I I can't really go into that, but most likely will be for uh, another year or more. Mm-hmm. So it is not currently one of the many frustrating things about managing chronic illness for you, which is excellent. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. De- I mean, dealing with the insurance can be frustrating, but having it is very good. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, this is going to be kind of my, my last question. And then if there's anything else that you want to throw in there, go for it. But so what is your day-to-day like right now? It sounds like you're still doing like medical investigation and trying to figure out the best ways to kind of care for your body and improve your baseline and all this stuff that makes sense. But yeah, just like what's right now like for you? Right now, I've actually gotten to be very uh like in a routine um which is uh I guess not exactly how I it's hard for me to have any structure in my life if no one's imposing it like if I don't have a boss or school or whatever Mm -hmm. um but I pretty much partly because I have to take medication so many times in the day and that structures my day itself it's like I um you know, I get up at 7 a.m. every single day. I go to bed at probably around 10.45 or 11 p.m. every single day. Um, I 
uh, I go to the JCC and shower like three times a week. Um, I, uh, I work on, um, right, right now I've been working on a couple of writing projects. Um, one is my blog, um, which, uh, you'll probably put a link to, um, it's, so the first four letters of my last name, H E L F as in Frank, Mm-hmm. Um, and then care. So like health care, but with an F. <laughs> That's great. I love it. So, okay. And so um, you blog about all the stuff, this kind of stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say it's more personal essays and less towards the let's educate the public yeah, kind of thing. Totally. Um, I, that's also my preference from a, a impact and reading point of view. So that's one thing I do. Um, the other thing right now that I've been working on, um, so my aunt uh, in Minnesota is a playwright. Um, her name is Kit Bix, so K-I-T-B-I-X, and she and I, uh, she was commissioned uh, to write a play for the Minnesota Fringe Festival um, this coming August, and she's written plays for them the past couple of years. Um, and uh, this year, I, I kind of caught this like playwriting bug all of a sudden. And I asked her if she, I just asked her if she could like give me advice on how to write plays. And she's like, oh, I'm writing one right now. Do you want to like help me write it? So um, I've been contributing uh, a little bit to that. Yeah, that must be just kind of an awesome opportunity to really learn about something and work on something and all the stuff. Yeah, no, it's it's really nice. I mean, I... I'm finding I learn a lot more when it's not for a grade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. When it's not like it, it's such a different kind of pressure when you're doing something. It's like performative for school or whatever. Yeah. 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 No. Um, so the play is going to be called, as far as I know, the title is the HUAC Roadshow. Uh, that's H-U-A-C um, stands for the House on American Activities Committee. And um so it's going to be kind of a documentary play about mm-hmm. um, the House on American Activities Committee over its, uh, I think, like 30 years of operation, which a lot of people don't know. It was, uh, I mean, it was an active part of the House uh, before McCarthyism was a thing. Mm. So we kind of tell, uh like some of the earlier history of it and uh, show how it kind of built into the uh, force that it was. Yeah. That sounds excellent. And like, yeah, totally an interesting thing. And you get to like research and you get to be creative and you get to like put a lot of different parts of yourself into one project. Yeah, no, it's, it's weird. Like as much as being ill a lot or just having these limitations sucks. Sometimes you just feel like you've tapped into this big secret of life that everyone else is missing out on. Yeah. Yeah. Your perspective changes so much when you're like, oh, the way that some of my, you know, healthy peers or whatever are just living, like everything about what dictate, dictates their choices is so different from mine. But there are some parts of my experience that I'm so grateful for even if there are some parts that I could do without (laughs) yeah and it's just like being forced to 
kind of slow down and um, probably cut out a lot of the negative influences in your life just because you physically cannot tolerate them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I barely drink at this time in my life because every time I do, the consequences are so severe. Like the full day hangover I had after having one can of cider a month ago when I was like, it's a beautiful day. I'm going to be normal. No, that's not what happened. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, it sounds, I mean, it sounds and kind of is like awful. Like everyone's like, who would want to live like this? But you do kind of have to learn to deal with your stress in ways other than drinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else about chronic illness or your own experience um, or healthcare that we haven't gotten to that feels top of mind for you? Hmm. I guess there's one kind of analogy I've been thinking about. Um, something I've learned lately. Um, so I've taken a little bit of computer science and whatever I explain here may be uh, like a little bit off, but <laughs> that's okay. I mean, I mean, we learned about this, thing called an interrupt basically um and a lot of things that you do to your computer can uh trigger an interrupt it basically means we stop whatever process is happening and like start this new one and like a good example of that is if you want to move the mouse um then that's like a process that's very like that has to happen in a certain amount of time i mean your computer loading an internet page, like it's not great if it takes a minute, but it can take a minute. You don't want to like move the mouse and then have the mouse move like a minute after you moved it. Um, Yeah. That's just frustrating and like confusing. Like there has to be like an interrupt that says, wait, and obviously this all happens so quickly that you don't experience it as like the other process completely stops, especially, uh, like modern computers just have a lot of ways to run multiple processes at once and use threading and all this kind of stuff you can't get into. But I have learned that physiological needs are an interrupt. And like on my very like slow kind of like MS-DOS kind of deal of my body, like that means like if I am doing something and I have any kind of need, like my body will not really let me do that thing until I've addressed the need and it'll get worse and worse until I do. Um, and I literally will have experiences where I'm like writing something or reading and like, I'm kind of getting stuck and not like quite getting what's going on. And, um, and so sometimes I just take a step back. I'm like, what is my body saying? And sometimes I realize like, oh, I actually really have to pee or like, I'm actually really hungry. And I go address the need and all of a sudden I can work again. Yeah. And I would have had no idea if I didn't learn just how difficult it is to like attune to my signals. Yes. Yeah. I, I love that analogy. And I totally, totally relate to that. It's It's like as a healthy person or growing up without a diagnosis or whatever's going on, like you learn to ignore this stuff basically. 
Like, obviously, you still go to the bathroom and you still eat or whatever. It's not that you your body is a machine, but, like, you don't learn to be super attuned to this small stuff that necessarily wants to be taken care of. And I think that's another part of the, like, taking space. You know, like, when you stop working and you take space to actually listen to your body and you're like, oh, there's a lot more going on here and a lot more subtle messages being sent than I had originally realized. Yeah, you get so out of touch with it. And I think we also receive the message that it's like indulgent to even listen. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's like a only a thing for like, you know, fancy wellness people who are like, I don't even know what, like healthy people who go on the paleo diet and take a lot of baths and it gets branded as like indulgent self-care. And you're like, that's probably not a real stereotype to begin with. But also a lot of this self-care stuff is actually totally necessary to function. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely not very glamorous. um, And people don't really see the work that goes into, um, you know, even being able to show up for an interview like this have to yeah really be taking care of myself yeah yeah and like an hour and a half is a lot of time to be like still and cognitively present and all a lot goes into these conversations I think totally totally but thank you so much for for talking to me and putting all of it into like putting everything that you needed in order to be present for yeah about an hour and a half (laughs) Thank wow, you. we we did it. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 43 of No End in Sight. You can find Nora on Twitter at nhelfand, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at venisb. And of course, you can find this show on Instagram at no.end.in.site.pod. I post each episode as a story, but I haven't posted to the main feed in a while because I'm so behind on transcripts, as you know. So, of course, the whole reason that I've started a Patreon account is to help with those transcripts. So I'm going to go ahead and plug that again. It's patreon.com slash noendinsight. Next week, I'll be talking to a woman with neuromyelitis optica. So make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to find out when new episodes are available. And if you've been enjoying the show, I would be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners know what to expect from the show. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I've got some fun fall patterns in the shop and dozens of very simple icons that you can customize to your heart's delight. I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.